Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Burrell. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. We're so grateful that North Coast Chronicles is on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, inland seas, and natural resources at coastalnewstoday.com. Today's podcast is called Dance Halls and Full Dress Balls, Great Lakes in the Gilded Age. Despite having virtually 100% success in convincing really great people, like our guest today, to join me on the show, I was a little nervous that today's guests wouldn't find us worthy of their time. After all, they represent two incredible historic hotels in the Great Lakes, if not in the world. We have with us Mr. Bob Taggetts, who is the resident historian for the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, Michigan. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Oh, thanks for inviting me. This is going to be fun. Also with us is Miss Leslie Heinrichs. She's the archivist for Marcus Corporation. That's the company that owns the historic Pfister Hotel in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome, Leslie. Hi, Helen. I'm so happy to be here. The Grand Hotel and the Pfister Hotel are much more than hotels built in the late 1800s. They allow us to see into a slice of American history, the Gilded Age. Now, the Gilded Age is the term for the period of economic boom, which began after the American Civil War and ended at the turn of the century. Now, I read that historians in the 1920s took the term from one of Mark Twain's novels called The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. And I think the stories our guests unlock for us surrounding two iconic hotels from the era will open our eyes to a bygone era of the Great Lakes. But first, with us as always is our trusty engineer and amazing producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Helen. How's it going? Hey, pretty good. Um, so excited to hear about the Grand Infister Hotels today. Yeah, me too. Me too. I've, I, I don't know if I haven't told you this, but the Grand Hotel, of course, is, is a hotel that I know because of uh, Somewhere in Time, that movie. I bet you're not the only person that knows that, Tyler. Well, anybody under over a certain age, I would have to say. But uh, it is pretty cool. And we'll probably ask a little bit about some of that to Bob today. ASPN is the brainchild of Tyler and his partner, Peter Ravella. And they host a weekly podcast called the American Shoreline Podcast. Well, this month, which is Women's History Month, they invited me to join their podcast about women leaders in coastal and ocean resource study and management. Tyler, is that podcast out for everyone to hear yet? It absolutely is, Helen. And go to coastalnewstoday.com and search our podcast and you can find it in our stack. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, I, w- I was a little nervous at the start of the show because I was a little concerned I could not truly represent the cohort of women, past and present, who achieved so much, so many firsts, really, in the field, like Sylvia Earle, who is considered the first woman oceanographer, or Maria Mitchell, Marie Tharp, Rachel Carson, Katie Payne. And we noted, too, that the real growth of women in the field of ocean and freshwater studies has been realized relatively late, just in the last 30 or 40 years. Tyler, I, I, I welcome your 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 perception of the show. I mean, um, it was kind of cute in the beginning. We teased that it's nice the guys to invite a woman on the show to talk about Women's History Month. Um, it really was fun. Um, any sense of, uh, like, after afterwards, any thoughts about it? Well, of course. And, uh, I mean, most importantly, Helen, I thought the thing that, that I came away from uh, most vividly was when I asked you about your kind of role models and heroes growing up and if any of them were women. And what you said was no. And I found that to be so informative to me because in my growing up years, I kind of intuitively grasped onto these male uh, role models all around me, many of whom I still follow. 
and have have tried to work with and you know have really shaped my life and my professional career and that really got me thinking about uh some of the big social differences that persist to this day and why women's history month is so important well i too had men mentors and they were terrific and they helped shape my career um but um I would say yes as a child. I teasingly said that I watched Flipper, right? And I had a crush on the teenage guy or something, you know, or <laughs> I thought, what a, what a cool profession, right? Um, to be able to hang out and, and do water stuff. Um, I'm just grateful that now uh, I have a, a strong, there's a strong group of women's uh, leaders um, that I work with, talk to, we sh- support each other now. And um, certainly many of us are working very hard to mentor those who've come after us. So I would say that while the glass ceiling has been smashed for many, including me, um, I think the task now is to expand the diversity, equity, and inclusion for communities of women who are underrepresented in the field and generally uh, generally, and in positions of leadership. But thank you so much to you and Peter for allowing me to join that show. It was our pleasure, Helen. Last month, Tyler and I welcomed three heroes in Great Lakes Conservation, Lisa kuchbot Brohl from the Lake Erie Islands Conservancy, Greg Chown from the Grand Traverse Regional Land Conservancy, and Pamela Grasmick from the Beaver Island Association. Now, I acknowledge that there are numerous hard-charging people out there in the Great Lakes who make a difference every day to conserve our precious resource, but there's always more to do. And Lisa, Greg, and Pam shared the real-life practical steps they took to preserve and protect their particular part of the Great Lakes. Tyler, I hope that listeners were inspired as much as I was to follow in their footsteps. I think we learned a lot. Most importantly, that the real work oftentimes, I mean, Helen, you're in D.C., and uh, I oftentimes am thinking about, you know, national policy, state policy, kind of give big government acts, but so much of the real work that really impacts people is right there in the marsh. Yeah, kind of like where the rubber meets the road or the boat meets the water or the boots meet the marsh, I guess. It just takes hard work, right? 5% sales and 95% follow-up, and they have done all of that. And I did like the one idea that uh, one of the groups was doing where they have a challenge with another town about how much garlic mustard they can pull out, which is an invasive. And I think that's kind of cute, you know, just bragging rights and who collects the most. Um, but it is, you know, a way to make it fun and get people involved. So uh, check it out, folks. Um, if you really want to hear you know, grassroots ways in which you can make a difference. I really appreciate you checking out the Conservation Heroes of the Great Lakes. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today was established to support the success of shoreline professionals and empower an informed coastal citizenry, illuminating divergent viewpoints among coastal interests and advancing the understanding of our vital oceans and inland resources. North Coast Chronicles, as well as other shows on the network, rely upon advertising and sponsorships to keep coastal news and entertainment in the forefront. Please consider supporting any of the great catalog of shows on ASPN by contacting us at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Now, I named this episode Dance Halls and Full Dress Balls because balls are special occasions normally attended by the members of high society. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, balls of all types were held in public halls and private homes. There were charity balls intended as fundraisers, balls organized by societies and associations, and even costume balls. And balls were particularly popular during the Victorian era, which is technically 1837 to 1901. It was a time when society was governed by strict moral precepts, or supposed to be, and books were published on how to behave correctly, how to dress appropriately, and what to say in various specific situations. Our discussion today is not strictly about full-dress balls at the Grand or Fister Hotels, 
but what these hotels represent from a particular place in U.S. and Great Lakes history contribute to our perception of the Gilded Age. And while America became more prosperous and saw unprecedented growth in industry and technology, the Gilded Age has had its downside. It was a period when industrialists, bankers, and politicians enjoyed extraordinary wealth and opulence at the expense of the working class. But we'll learn about all of the people that made their way to the Great Lakes region for business and fun in the sun. Bob Taggetts is the resident historian from the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island in Michigan. But he's no ordinary guy. Bob was named Historic Hotels of America Historian of the Year. Now, Bob, that's a lot to live up to. Well, it's being the number one nerd in the United States. That's what it means. <laughs> well, we're with you. <laughs> I hope so. So, Bob, um, I'm going to ask a silly question. Resident historian, does that mean you live at the Grand Hotel as a resident? Well, I'm a resident historian for the hotel, but I don't live physically in the hotel. At no time other than the very early period of the hotel did employees live in it. But I do live on the island, and I'm there every single day. I do tours and lectures and, and work with the media, nice people like yourself. Are you from the area? I am not. I'm actually a Floridian. I started down there uh, studying turn of the century woods frame vernacular hotels, Henry Morrison Flagler Hotels down there, and spent a series of time trying to save one, the old Orman Hotel. And in doing so, I kind of became a kind of an expert, I guess, on wood frame hotels. I traveled to all the ones, the large ones that still exist in the United States. Grand Hotel was absolutely my favorite, and I kind of begged for a job there 27 years ago, and they, they put me on, and I wore them down and became the historian and concierge there for years and now full-time historian. Well, I mean, just looking you up online, everybody is a fan for sure, and they follow you, what you do, and your talks. Um, and so, silly question, you're, you're, you know about wood, um, the wood frame hotels. What about wood frame uh, roller coasters? <laughs> no, I have not done that. I, I do uh, early Florida attractions up to 1971, but not so much wood frame roller coasters. That would be fun though. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking of Cedar Point, and my favorite is the old wood frame one because that was actually the one when I was growing up as well. But, but, and, but so, so the Grand Hotel. I mean, I I love the fact that you mentioned wood frame because I mean we're going to talk first about like the hotel itself because it it's it's appearances. I mean the the facade, just the whole. When you think of the hotel, you think of the front of the hotel, right? That long hotel and how extraordinary it is. And it, does it truly have the longest front porch in the world? Oh, it all depends on how you measure it and how you hype it. You know, the longest front porch in a summer resort hotel kind of narrows it down. But there are many large hotels. But as far as wood frame hotels in the United States today, I think we do. Here, here's the rarity of our, our, our little place up there. In, in 1904, the type of hotel that I study is the wood frame hotel of 200 rooms or more. Uh, in 1904, there was over 1,200 in the United States. Two-thirds were built by transportation companies, just like we were. We were built by two railroads and a steamship company. Today, in the United States of the large wood frames, there's just 11 remaining. There's a lot of smaller ones, but the real big one's just 11 left. So that's kind of the rarity of it. And architecturally, we're not really Victorian. When they designed Mason Rice for our architects, and when they looked at our hotel, they said, you know, we're going to be here a long time. And they really felt that this the, the, the over-the-top Victorian architecture, Queen Anne revival, was going to go by the wayside, and they wanted a classic look. So there's several different styles combined into it. And here's what they said. They said they wanted to look classic and elegant up on that bluff 100 years from now, and it's been 136 years, and nothing else would look right up on that bluff than that hotel, just how it sits. That's so true. It's like Mount Vernon, right? You know, Mount Vernon has had simple lines up on the bluff, and it has transcends time and age. Yeah, well, it, it's a, uh, it, it, and it, it truly has. And so, I, I will have to 
mention quickly that Tyler mentioned the movie Somewhere in Time that had Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. It was from the, I think, 1980 or something. It's a wonderful, charming movie, very sentimental. But that's not the first movie that was filmed there, right? No, there's several films. The first one was filmed in the 1920s. It was a silent film by Metro Pictures. They shot it on the west end of our front porch. They turned the front porch actually into a pirate ship, and we don't even have a copy of the film, unfortunately. Uh, The second film that was made there of any note, and smaller films were made there, but the second one of any note was an Esther Williams film. It was this time for Keeps with Esther Williams, Jimmy Durante, uh, Melise Melacor, Johnny Johnson. And that was filmed uh, at a time when we really needed a, a boost in some publicity after World War II uh, in 47. It was released in 49 and, or 48. And we we had no earthly idea of the power of Hollywood. You know, everybody knows somewhere in time, but that movie, the phones just rang off the hook. I mean, rang off the hook. Esther Williams had such a following, um, you know, and every other phone call was, well, can we stay in the same hotel and can we swim in the same pool? And w- would that possibly be the same water that Esther Williams swam in? You know, so... In 1949, we had the highest occupancy rate we ever had up until that point, and it was so attributed to that film. So we've we've redone last year, actually, the Esther Williams swimming pool, keeping it in her name with her image all over the place. Uh, the Somewhere in Time, same thing. You know, when the film came out, it, it was not a success at the box office immediately, but today it has the second largest fan club and following of any single film after Gone with the Wind. And I've been there. This will be my 27th year. I've never had a day when someone didn't ask me something about that film. Well, I, good to get it out of the way because there's so much more to talk about. But let me ask, did Esther Williams uh, water ski on Lake Michigan? I don't know that she did. You know, the rumor is always she never swam in the pool. And Esther swam in that pool every single day. And she came back to the hotel. She has a suite at the hotel. Uh, um, yeah, she passed away a few years ago. We have the Esther Williams swimming pool. She wanted a piano in it. So we have a little piano in her suite as well. And, and later when she got a little bit older, it was a little cold out when she came to the hotel. I have these wonderful photographs of her pouring champagne into the pool. She'd go out in an evening gown when we used to have a diving board and she would pour champagne into the pool at the time. She was, I I got to meet Esther Williams and she was the epitome of Hollywood and elegance and charm and style. Oh, how fun. So when was the Grand Hotel actually built? And you you indicated that it was built by corporations. And who built it? Well, it was built by two railroads and a steamship navigation company. Uh, The Gilded Age was built on the backs of America's second industrial revolution. And America's second industrial revolution turned our cities into pretty difficult places to be in the summer. It was raw wood and raw coal being burned 24 hours a day. It was hot. It was dirty. It smelled bad. I I collect cards and letters from the hotel. I have almost 2,000. And I have a, a letter of a lady that said she hadn't seen the sun for two weeks because the dust and the dirt and the soot in the city and the transportation companies evolved faster than we did in the lodging business as in taking people out of these hot dirty cities the rare the steamships were the first they, they evolved into these you know what we would call a luxury liner today to get people out of the cities to what they called all these exotic places and Mackinac Island you know, of all the things we've had, we were, you know, we were Native Americans, then fort and fur trading and then fishing. But we're right in the middle of the Great Lakes and the cool breeze, you know, it rarely hits 80 degrees, especially back then at the time. It was an ideal place to take people. So the steamships came in first, the first steamships in the 1860s and 70s. But the railroads is what changed America more than anything else. By 1900, we had 200,000 miles of railroad track in the United States. We have roughly half that today. And the railroad starting building private railroad cars, George Pullman, the Palace Car Company, to get these wealthy people out of the cities. And all this happened faster 
than us in the trans in the the lodging business. So these hotels, you know, I'd love to say they're built out of wood because it was a good idea. It was cheap and it was fast, and everybody knew this second generation Gilded Age money was not going to last. So build them quickly, cheaply, say incredible things about them, the unbelievable lies they advertised to the romantic Victorians, and get folks to come up to the summer. So we were built in 1887. They were in such a hurry to build us, they drug the lumber across the frozen lake. Normally, it would take nine to 11 months to build a hotel of our size, which was 200 rooms when we originally opened. Uh, they had a contract of, to pay a quarter of a million dollars, which was almost twice what it would normally cost to build a 200-room wood frame hotel, but it had to be completed in 90 days. And they had 600 laborers making double wages, working 24 hours a day. They didn't quite make it. It was 93 days. We opened three days late, July 10th, 1887. Wow, try to do that today. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Although going over the ice is pretty clever because it does save a lot of time and energy. What was the steamship line that was uh, bringing people and where did they bring them from to you? Um, Chicago was probably our biggest base of guests. Uh, the East and West Bluff, the fancy Victorian cottages, there's actually known as Chicago Row because of that. But all over the Great Lakes, any port in the Great Lakes, the steamships, you know, the, they plied the Great Lakes. The Detroit Cleveland Steamship Navigation Company was uh, one of our largest investors and then two railroads. But that was the biggest steamship company. And the steamships had been coming in and they were very frustrated. They wanted private money to build these places. They did not want to build them. That's a very interesting thing uh, because majority of, I say majority, close to a third of them were built with the understanding they wouldn't make money. They were just a tool for doing business. We were a quarter of a million dollars to build and $62,000 to furnish. We were elegant, but fairly simple. Um, and our we had to keep our rates really cheap because there were so many of these hotels. Uh, the season was only two months long. We were open July and August. Our rates were three to five dollars a night. So we had we had you know over three hundred thousand dollars invested in the hotel. Our rates were three to five dollars a night, and we had no income for ten months out of the year. And they knew that, but they needed the destination because transportation was so much more profitable. They could afford to lose money. And about a third of the hotels they built, they did. We did not make money for years. Oh wow! Didn't think about it that way, but now you say it, it makes a lot of sense. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So the steamships were a big deal, um, you know, all throughout the lakes. So you said rooms were like three to five dollars a night. So I mean, now of course it sounds cheap, but I don't know what that was like back then. Was that a lot of money? And then who actually came to the hotel? It was a little high, but not real high. And here's the thing: nobody came to spend. Uh, a weekend or a convention like they kind of do today. The season was two months long. We were open July and August, and most all the guests stayed the entire season. You rented a room for two months. And when you came, uh, many times the servants would arrive ahead of time. They had rooms in the back of the hotel. They would unpack the giant steamer trunks. Many of the families that came uh, brought their own horses or carriages. And we would actually keep their carriages and their riding hacks and their summer carriages uh, over the winter. And either they would lease horses from the hotel or sometimes Vanderbilt would uh, bring his own horses there and we would take care of them in the stable as well. So uh, they would come ahead of time, uh, guests. You know, guess we're the second generation of the Industrial Revolution money. So we weren't necessarily the movers and shakers and robber barons, their children. That's the Gilded Age. That's the the, the the generation that was born into wealth and money. We'd never seen anything like that in our history. And they were bored to death and they wanted escape and fantasy. The single best word to describe them were romantics. And, and you wanted to create these romantic destinations. And even though, you know, the world is very small because of transportation today, coming to Mackinac Island was on a steamship was like going to the moon. 
I mean, you went to this island that still, you know, had Native Americans on it and, and teepees and tents down by the water to, to, to in the middle of nowhere to come to this island and to find in the wilderness this giant luxurious hotel of this rough little town that had electricity and amenities and excellent food for the season. So this was a big deal. So we were the second generation, the younger set, the smart set. So we had to put together all kinds of sporting events and romantic things for them to do. Well, I want to apologize because I passingly said that Mackinac Island's in Lake Michigan. It's not. It's Lake Huron. Uh, so I'm sorry about that before you call me and everybody tell me I don't know my way around the Great Lakes. Um, but uh, it, it is an extraordinary place. So you, you, you touched on it a little bit. What was Mackinac Island like? I mean, really, there were Native Americans there in the late 1800s? Yeah. What was Mackinac Island like? Um, we were, you know, it's romanticized as beautiful Victorian destination, but it was a very rough island. You know, we were a fort. Uh, that was, you know, the basic. And then we returned to the United States fur trading. John Jacob Astor based the American Fur Trading Company there um, after the War of in 1814, after the War of 1812. Uh, by 1822, our population of 30-something civilians, not including soldiers, uh, went to 2,000 people during the peak of fur trading season. 1822, we did they did $4 million worth of fur trade. $4 million in 1822, millionaires were made there. Fur trading went west with the opening of Chicago. Um, the American Fur Trading Company went down there and they established. So fur trading died out. We sustained ourselves by fishing. Many of the Irish that came showed us how to fish to sustain it. And that was what the livelihood was. So the island was a rough little place. That's all I can tell you. Uh, when the During the fishing period, the, the city actually passed an ordinance that they could no longer gut fish on the main street. The schoolyard, what it, what it is today, was used for that because the island just stunk. And during that period of time, the steamship started coming in to refuel. Over the winter, they would drug wood over the ice. Uh, there's still a dock known as the coal dock, because after wood fired the ships, we used coal to fire the ships. And it's still called the coal dock today. And they'd come in to refuel. And, and everybody has these romantic ways of how tourism really started. Now, tourism really started as people got off the steamship to look around this rough little island, a fishing island, little fur trading still going on. Um, and they would, and the Native Americans were the smartest people. They started selling them trinkets. They laid out blankets and they sold them trinkets and moccasins and things made out of birch bark. There was a lady on the island, you know, we're known for fudge, but she made maple candies and she traded maple candies. Um, and, and that was the thing to do. And they realized that this was big money, you know, and the Irish families there, the Chambers family said, hey, why don't you hook up a wagon and take these people on a, a quick tour while their ship's being refueled and tell them some incredible lies about the island, their romantics, and maybe they'll tip you well. Um, that same company, the, the Chambers family, is the oldest continuous operating carriage company in the United States. They own almost you know four to 500 horses on the island every single year today. So then modest hotels were built. There was an overnight steamboat shop, so they converted a school in 1850. 1852, the island house was built. And then the frustration of as the steamships and railroads evolved of not having a high-end destination in one of the places that had the cleanest water and the coolest air in the Great Lakes. So they tried to get private money to build it. Um, Francis B. Stockbridge made an attempt. It didn't work. So in frustration, they formed their own company, the two railroads and steamship companies, all equal thirds, 1886, and made plans to build us. And they built us in 1887. Oh, well, so Mackinac Island is still known for fudge, by the way, folks. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So, so quickly, to just go back to Fort Mackinac. So that was built by the British, right? Um, which really just to protect the straits, right, of Mackinac. And I'm, I'm guessing then um, the, the Americans won it in the War of 1812? 
Well, it, our, our military history isn't, isn't the most sterling in the world. But yeah, the British built it. Um, it was actually returned to the United States via treaty. We lost it twice. And it took us two years actually to get the fort back, even after by treaty, technically, it was ours. So uh, a couple wars, a couple battles were fought. Uh, one of them, a very bloody battle on there with the British and the Americans to retrieve the fort back. So it, it the military history, the fort is amazing. And the interpretive job they have done with that today, if you haven't been there to visit it, Please do, but it's amazing history. But yeah, the fort and the fort, very interestingly, they wanted to keep the island. So it became uh, Mackinac Island to keep control of the property because of strategic location militarily, but there was no military purpose after the War of 1812. It became the second national park in the United States after Yellowstone. And uh, it was, uh, and 20 years later in 1895, it became uh, uh, Michigan's very first state park and it remains a state park today. One of the most visited state parks as well. Well, you're kind of blowing my mind here. Uh, honestly, if so, said, what is the second oldest national park in the United States? I got to say, I wouldn't think of the, you know, the fort on Mackinac Island. Yep, it was just 20 years. And it was so they could keep control of that property. And, and today, 82% of the island is state park. Well, it's hard to believe that Mackinac is not even four square miles. Yeah. I mean, how do you fit all that all that activity and a fort in a national? No, so that's amazing. Well, I, I am happy for you that a lot of it's national parks lands, right? So it's protected. and State park um, today. State park today. State park today. Thank you for that correction. So be, I'd like to go to Leslie, but my last question for you right now is Native Americans. What were the what was the tribes that were there? Well, several different tribes were there. Chippewa were there. Um, and the, when, when you say what tribe was there, during fur trading, uh, many of the tribes, even warring tribes, it was so profitable to trade there. And like I said, all the different tribes traded there. So there was there was even a, a, a group of Indians that would not step on the white man's soil. But many of them came there because they believed the spirit of Mishla Mackinac. The, the name Mackinac means the great turtle or the great brooding turtle. When they would paddle across the Great Lakes, it was a day mark, like a lighthouse. They would see the big bump of the island and the little bump, and that was the shell of the turtle. And the Hurons believed when they slept at night that the great brooding turtle rose up and took them to where the light was. So there was a great reverence, and they felt comfortable trading with a white man there. In fact, many of the, the, uh, the traders would keep their valuables. They trusted them that much. Uh, so they could come and trade and they could trade for goods there as well. There was one trader that even dug a little trench so the Indian canoes could come in and never touch the land. They would trade right from the boat. And again, he would kind of keep their valuables in a safe. So when they came back, they knew that they were they were safe from all the different tribes and all the different warring factions in the area. So it's an amazing thing that all these tribes and all these famed in general, very, very peacefully over the years. Wow, thank you. I, I do have on, on my goals, I'd like to have a, a show about the Native Americans um, then and now, uh, because there's a lot of Native Americans uh, still living. I think, I think doesn't um, Michigan and Minnesota have, may have some of the, the largest number of tribes in the country other than Alaska. So um, yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, Leslie, um, the first thought that I have of the Grand Hotel, as I said, is really kind of the outside but with the Fister Hotel in Milwaukee, I think of the inside, and I can kind of imagine myself dressed in, you know, corset and crinoline walking through the lobby. Um, tell me a little bit about the Fister. I mean, it, it just feels um, special. I mean, everything's special, but what makes it special? Oh, my gosh. There are so many things that make it special. But if you start with the outside, just to give you an idea, it's sort of a rectangular shape, and it's um, a Romanesque revival design. And it's made of limestone and cream city brick, which is what Milwaukee is known for. So it's kind of kind of cool because it is the cream city brick that you'll see in a lot of our buildings. 
Um, but inside, you're right, is where it's the most special. So you walk in there and there's a two-story lobby and there is marble and onyx that came from North Africa and France and they brought it over on ships. And I don't know which ships, unfortunately, that's been lost to history, but they brought it over on ships and it took months and months to get here in these big slabs. And they also brought over craftsmen from Germany to make the hotel so beautiful. And so they would make like the pillars and um, there's a magnificent fireplace in the corner, which was considered the place to be seen. Um, originally, there was a glass atrium roof, and it's the only thing that's different in the lobby um, because we had a fresco painted there in honor of our 100th anniversary of the hotel, which was in 1993. There is also the original grandfather clock, which st was started the day the hotel opened on May 1st, 1893. And it's still ticking today. They're still using it. Um, what else makes it special? You know, and then I think the service is probably what makes it the most special. At the time it was built, there is this beautiful gold leaf saying, saying Salve. And it's up towards the top of the lobby. And salve is the Latin word that means welcome, you know, welcome, valuable guest, or, you know, sort of like to show that there's all this hospitality in the place. And today we still live by the motto of that, that you're welcome as an honored person into our hotel. And when you leave, you know, we hope that you have safe travels. So those would be some of the things. Gosh. You know, so what I find interesting, and I've been to Milwaukee many times, um, and only inside the Fister once, I must must say, and I didn't even get to stay there. By the way, I was only in the Grand Hotel once and didn't get to stay there. So clearly got clearly got to get back to them. But I find it interesting that Milwaukee, I mean, really, really wasn't getting established till the early 1800s. So in 1822 was when the first log cabin was built. So really like about, you know, 75, 80 years later, what a difference, right, in that, that period of time. And now you have this extraordinary hotel built. And now, am I, who built this hotel? And for what reason? Okay, and that story is great, too. So in 1845, Guido Pfister came over from Germany. And he was just, you know, he was maybe a middle-class sort of guy. He didn't have a lot of money. And he came here and became a tanner and ended up making a fortune. And he had two children, Charles and Louise, who he adopted. And coincidentally, they were the first two adoptions in Wisconsin. So I thought that was kind of interesting to know. But he made all this money and he worked on, you know, different things. And he got the idea he would like to maybe build a hotel. And in the meantime, there was one sort of grand hotel in Milwaukee. And in 1883, 10 years before the Fister was built, it burnt to the ground and many people were killed. And I think people were so afraid of fires in hotels. So he also had the idea, we have to have a fireproof hotel if we build one. So he tried to get some of his friends to chip in with him because he had the idea it would be more democratic to have a lot of people involved in the building of a hotel, but he could never get the packing that he wanted. And then in 1888, he died. And so 1890, his daughter and son, and here, you know, you have a, a woman actually involved in this too. His daughter had married into the Vogel family, which was the very rich tanners, the other 
very wealthy family in Milwaukee. And the two of them decided to have their father's dream come true. They had the idea that they wanted to make this not just for you know the wealthy, because their father wouldn't have liked that, but they wanted to make it so everybody was welcome and could feel like royalty when they came into the hotel. They wanted to contrast it with like European hotels where the royalty would stay. They wanted you to feel that way, you know, when you came and and stayed there. And so they brought in, um, you know, all these people to help create their vision. And Charles Pfister, and this is actually one of the most special things about the hotel, Charles Pfister had an art collection of Victorian art. And it was around 70 pieces. And he decided it was going to become part of the hotel. Today, it is still intact in the hotel, and it's the largest Victorian art collection in a hotel in the world. And you can come and you can just walk into the hotel and come and look at it. I mean, it's, it's just so nice and it's all over and it's beautiful. Um, and it really gives you insight into what people found engaging at the time. I just wanted to say two things. One, um, uh, Milwaukee is on Lake Michigan, <laughs> yes. by the way. And I, I, and I wonder if Guido got his pelts from the trading post in Mackinac Island. You never know, right? I, you know, I never heard exactly. And I tried to look up where exactly he got that, but I didn't find that. Yeah, that's good. That's okay. So this was, so they're, they're drawing from um, Chicago, perhaps, but um, people, did they go there and stay like for a couple of months um, because it was a beautiful part of the country and cooler in the summer? What brought people there, though? Okay, so... You know, initially, um, it was it was the only place to stay if you were coming to Milwaukee, you know, if you think about it. And it was a place where they had a lot of conventions. So right after it opened within now, it opened May 1st. So in June, they had their first convention there, which was a group of doctors. And it was, you know, all and they had all these amenities for people. So the ladies could take carriage rides and they could they could go see the neighborhoods where the truly wealthy of Milwaukee lived. And, you know, so they had they had amenities outside of there. But I think what really established it as a hotel to visit was when William McKinley President William McKinley came in 1899 to the hotel. And at the time, so so they needed all this extra help and Milwaukee did not have enough waiters that would be well enough trained for what they needed for the president to come. So they had the train, a special train, bring 100 Chicago waiters up to Milwaukee to come for his you know event. And when he was there, he actually made a speech at so one of the rooms, um, the room that he was in for this major speech that he made was the Fern Room. And the Fern Room today, you go in there and you just feel so special and it's all gold leafing. It has a balcony in the corner that you could stand up and look over, you know, over the people. And it was known as the Fern Room because they had all these plants that were ferns in the room. But he made this speech on imperialism. And it was the first one that he made in his presidency. And it became such a famous speech that they changed the name of the room to the Imperial Room. And so to me, that was a very you know interesting thing about it. But and the women stayed up in the balcony and looked down over it. Well, after that, we were known as, you know, a place that had presidents. And so more and more people came. Well, I think the Grand Hotel has, has that claim to fame as well. But um, I want, you know, I... 
I would have thought that Milwaukee was called Cream City because Wisconsin's got a lot of cows and dairy, right? You would think it's because, you know, because of the dairy connection, but that's not the case, right? No, it's the Cream City brick. I mean, and and I actually don't know why it's called that. Well, it's just cream-colored bricks, I guess, discovered and made there in the in 1800s. So, um, but it is funny how that that's stuck because um, we all think of Wisconsin as a dairy state, and so it would make sense. And I know they make a lot of beer in Milwaukee, but maybe they make a lot of ice cream. You know, you never know. So, so, so you talked about presidents visiting, um, Bob. Uh, can you match that? No, we had presidents come, but not until 1955. We've had five presidents, or actually six presidents now. Biden came when he was a, a senator. Um, we had six presidents, but they came in 55. So it we didn't it didn't it didn't affect the early part of the hotel or the Gilded Age. Certainly, when they were there, they certainly drew a lot of people, and it's a nice thing to say that you've had six presidents at your hotel. But no, we didn't we didn't import a hundred waiters for ours. <laughs> Given given the Gilded Age in the late 1800s, I mean, did you really, were there kind of uh, dress-up balls and big events? And Bob, what do you think was one of the biggest events uh, from that era or a type of event? Well, our evolution came after our first manager. We had a fellow, John Oliver Plank, that ran the hotel for three years from 1887 to 1890, and he ran the most efficient hotel you ever saw. We had excellent food, excellent service, a new building. We had modern amenities. We had a working elevator, but people stayed two months, and these people were romantics, and they wanted escape and fantasy. And he determined, uh, he left, actually, um, not under the best of terms, in 1890. The manager, James Rankin Hayes, that took over as manager from 1890 to 1900, he's the guy that made Grand Hotel Grand. And he said, our people, what's the best word to describe them? I said earlier, romantics. He said, what's the most romantic thing that we can put in place in this hotel? He literally said, let's give these people something to do. And he hired a social director, Mr. Eugene Sullivan. And he said the most romantic thing was music. And we had a small orchestra. We had real incredible technology. We had some of the Regina music boxes, some of the first Edison gramophones. But he said, I want to hire more musicians than any resort in the Great Lakes. And anytime, day or night, somewhere in the hotel, there'll be live music playing. And we, I mean, they scoured the Great Lakes for musicians for the season of 1890. We nearly wiped out the Minneapolis Symphony. We paid double wages and we had two orchestras. Uh, There was not a time of the day when there was not music in the hotel, on the front porch, balls, hops, cotillions, afternoon tea. We had sporting events and every single sporting event was accompanied by music. You know, my favorite was baseball. Guy'd get a good lick off the bat, be tearing around the bases and a violinist behind it would be just going like crazy. When they went across the base, cymbals would crash. Uh, During other sporting events, a flourish of music would be played when each uh, team scored. So you could be on the front porch having tea and you could keep score by hearing, oh, Vivaldi, the blue team has two. Then in the hotel, we had balls, hops, cotillions. 1892, he built our first specific ballroom. Most wood frame hotels, just for the financial side of it, use their dining rooms. You'd uh, clear out after dinner. They'd scallop the, the room with chairs, and the orchestra would play in there. We built our first um, in 1892, which is today our terrace room, where we have live music every single night during the season. Um, uh, it was too small. So we built two years later, we built the casino, which is now our theater. And that's massive. So at that point, we could even have two orchestras playing. Uh, later, we'd have balls and cotillions down in the tea garden. They built two stages and they would have outdoor dances out there as well. So music is what really put a sports music activities. But music is really, truly what made Grand Hotel Grand during that period of time. Um, it sounds wonderful. Um, Leslie Fister, has, was it historically just used for business primarily? 
No, it wasn't. There were, um, it was all kinds of entertainment. For example, we had a room called the Crown Room, and this is later, but just to give you an idea, we'd have the best of talent come and play, and it was on the top floor of the hotel, and people from all over would come to see them. But but early on, we had a lot of, you know, stage people like Lillian Russell stayed there. Um, we had Frank Lloyd Wright was there, and he thought it was a perfect example of what Milwaukee architecture should be. Um, we had poets. Eugene Field wrote poems about us. You know, and I, I haven't been able to find any of those because a lot of this stuff has been lost to history. But I know he was very... Um, excited about our two bronze lions. And so he used to talk to them in the lobby. Uh, well, actually, when he came there, they were outside. Um, they're, they're beautiful bronze lions that came from Italy and they were outside the hotel, but then eventually they were moved into the hotel 33 years after it opened to keep them from being more weathered. But he would talk to the lions and um, we had you know, different writers, Jack London stayed there. And, you know, you just think about all these different famous people. So of course, Milwaukee people would want to stay there too, or at least come and sit in the lobby because you never know who you would run into. So I think it was, it really was, you know, kind of a mix of those fancy balls, but at the same time, kind of the social place to be and, you know, a little bit of both. So speaking of losing stuff to history, um, is there anything, Leslie, that you know, you talked about not having those poems. Is there, is there anything that, you, that just breaks your heart that doesn't, uh, isn't around anymore? There, there are a lot of things. So the Marcus Corporation took over the hotel in 1962. But, okay, so, so the way that the hotel worked from the early days, it was Charles Fister's. And then in 1927, he sold it to a, a guy who had worked from bellhop up to manager. And so this guy, Ray Smith, kept the hotel until 58. And from 58 to 62, the hotel kind of fell into disrepair and some different companies bought it and tried to revive it, but they didn't put much money and they were just kind of like taking money out. And during that time, all the archival stuff pretty much disappeared. You know, the things that I would want, the the newspaper clippings, we have some, but not many. The, you know, different photographs. And, and so I'm on a constant quest to try to collect these things and to try to add to the history and listen to stories and, you know, hear things so that we know more about it. So, so yeah, my heart breaks a lot. Thanks, um, Bob. There's got to be some things you wish you still had from the old hotel. Oh, my story is exactly, I mean, my story is exactly like Leslie's. Um, yeah, here's the deal, though. You never know, and this is so hard for people to understand, you never know you're going to be in a historic hotel until one day you are a historic hotel. So when you're in the hotel business and you're trying to meet the needs of a modern traveler, where well, you get rid of this and that, and that's old style. And, you know, people always ask me, is we have a pretty amazing furniture collection, but none of it's original. And they go, well, what's original in the hotel? Well, you know, I always tell people, where's your avocado? Avocado gold refrigerator from 1970. Well, it's in an antique mall today. So no, we got rid of everything. You know, my favorite, my my one of the saddest things is all the guest registry books were all handwritten and they all disappeared. I bought two back. I bought um, a 1920s. I got a 1901 and then 1920, 1921, where they, you know, they signed in so you know who stayed at the hotel and the luminaries and the people that were there. But no, you always lose a lot to history. And I do exactly what Leslie did. I mean, exactly. I'm 
constantly collecting. The majority of things I get, uh, the best things I get are still from guests. We have fourth, and I have to say this year before last, we had two of our very first verified fifth generation guests. So my best resource in the world is people bringing me things. You know, I, I had a couple that spent their honeymoon there in 1956 and they saved every single receipt brochure, uh, brought it to me, put it in the archives. A bellman from uh, a grandfather, 1930, sent me the bellman outfit. So the best resource are those guests that have been coming generation after generation. Yeah. I, so, so sometimes there's fire sales in places, right? Just to make money or they're going disrepair for a while. You know, how do you advertise to try to get those things back? Yeah, eBay used to be my biggest resource, but generally it's word of mouth. I've got a lady right now contact me with an art collection of people, that, of things that were in the hotel. So it is it is many resources, you know, the state of Michigan, all the different archives of people out there that, that track these things to go and find out what's for sale and when collections come up for sale, whatever you can purchase to put back in there. I mean, it's, it is, it, to me, the, the historical part, here's what I tell people, I, I, especially the people that pay, write my paycheck. I say appreciation leads to registration. So a deeper appreciation with the history of the hotel and what happened there. I, there's so many guests come to both our hotels because they're real, they're genuine, they're honest. They're not a facsimile, a Disney type hotel. They're real, honest, and genuine. If you want to immerse yourself in history, you go to one of these two hotels. Wow. My heart just twanged when you said not a Disney imitation because um, that I think that's what you crave. When you see the imitations, you go, gosh, I'd really like to see the original. And with the Grand and the Fister they're the originals. Leslie, um, who came, I mean, you said business people came and folks in Milwaukee wanted to stay there, but primarily where were your customers from in the late 1800s and then from there on and how did they get there? So our customers were a variety of people. You know, as I said, it could be the people coming for conventions. It could just be people who wanted to stay there, but many of our people came from Chicago and Chicago is very interesting because the day the Fister Hotel opened, was the day of the Chicago World Fair. And that was May 1st, 1893. So that was the opening of the Chicago World Fair. And at the Chicago World Fair, they had um, this, this whaleback steamer. And the, the man who made it, and I don't know what his name is, but he was from Superior. And he used whaleback steamers before that just for, you know, like moving stock for different places. But he thought that he could maybe make a line that moved passengers. And so during the Chicago World Fair, he created this one called the Christopher Columbus. And he would drive it like six miles around so people in Chicago could go to different parts of the World Fair and travel by steamer. And so... Eventually, after the fair, it became a daily route from Milwaukee to Chicago and back, and people would come up there. And really, we're not very far from the lake. If you look from the hotel, you can see the lake if you go high enough up. Um, we're only a few blocks away. I could actually walk there when I'm over at the Fister. And so, you know, people from there would take um, the electric cars and, and come through and the electric trolley. And they'd be able to come right up there or there would be the, you know, cabs down there meeting them and come up. So it wasn't very far. That's really interesting, that the, the connection with the World's Fair and that whaleback ship. Yeah, everybody, um, you know, they, they follow the marketplace. And that's definitely the case uh, with shipping lines. We've talked about that. Um, and just uh, at Christmas, we talked about the uh, Chicago Christmas tree ship that brought Christmas trees from the Upper Lakes down to Chicago. And they do it today. 
Bob, what is now original? The original the original piece was where you see the front porch of the Grand Hotel, and there are wings. Could you describe like what's new or what's been changed, uh, you know, uh, design wise, building wise over the years? Yeah, it's all dictated by the the ebb and flow of the economy and guests that came to the hotel. We opened up, we were 426 feet long, the front porch. We had 200 original guest rooms at the hotel. And since then, we've had 14 major expansions. So we're just a hair under 400 rooms today. And we've added to the east end, the west end. We've raised and built rooms above the porch, uh, two wings. Uh, We got rid of the dormers around the turn of the century on the roof. That was actually employee housing. And when we over book the hotel in the 1890s, um, we would put guests up there and they enjoyed the view so much. In 1890, we kicked them all out and we raised the roof and built those rooms. Uh, the cupola, which is up on the roof, has now evolved into a beautiful two-story bar with a chandelier that goes from the top bar to the bottom bar as well. So we've actually doubled in size. But our goal, um, Helen, is, is never lose the architectural integrity of the building. You know, who we really are is not our horse and carriage logo. It's, it's, it's that look of that front port. So our goal is never to lose it. Our largest expansion in my time is we added 52 new rooms. We added a brand new dining room extension onto the dining room. And we had, I don't know, 200,000 guests that year. And and I, I had five people noticed at the end of the hotel looked a little different because when you walk into the newer wings, we reproduce the sprinkler systems, the windows, the doorknobs, the carpet, the thresholds. So we don't want to lose who we are and what we're about. If you lose that, those people that want the real authentic experience, they know the difference of a reproduction. And we're not a reproduction. We're the real thing. Yes, you are. Leslie, um, with the Fister, you, know, you had has the 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 building itself changed because it sounds like it was pretty set the way it was, and it's also in a city, so you may not have had the room to change and grow. Um, how's it changed since it was first built? So in 1962, when the Marcus family took over the hotel, um, they realized that they wanted to add more rooms onto it, but you couldn't really do that because of the way the building is. So they built a tower next to it that was the more modern part. You know, and I mean, it, it was and wasn't, but so the tower is um, hexagon sort of shaped, but you'd think it was round if you're inside of it. Um, and the tower was actually considered an eyesore by many people when it was first built, but they had brought engineers in from New York who were experts in it. And the, it was the only shape that they could actually build because of the way the plumbing was underneath. And so the tower added on more ballrooms and more amenities and parking space and, you know, things like that and a swimming pool and, you know, other things that would be more what people wanted more currently. How do you maintain the historic integrity and feel and look while modernizing? I mean, obviously the beds are not the old beds, right? They're, you know, even the frames from the old beds are gone and, and, Things have to change. Um, let me let me ask you first. Let's see. How do you do that in a in something as old and important as the Fister? I think you know the even the original idea of the Fister was use the most modern technology, but you know to to keep that feel in there. So if you went into the, some of the guest rooms, you know, especially in the tower, you look at them and they have a lot of you know technology in there, and there's you know you can. You can have your shower heated to the correct temperature for you. I, I thought that was pretty cool. I, I really want to stay in one of those rooms because I want to have that 
you know, try that out. But, you know, they have a lot of modern technology within the rooms because people want those kind of amenities, you know, and you have to be really aware of what your customers will want. But at the same time, they'd never do something like cut down, you know, the pillars or, or anything like that. Though in history, I have noticed that at different points, they did do some questionable um, things like like carpeting at certain points that we now do not have, but that sounded like it was mauve and orange and, you know, a little bit tacky. I mean, if we look back, I don't have pictures, unfortunately, of that. But, you know, so, so I think over the years, you know, there were things done. But, you know, mostly you, you know that the art collection is staying. You know that, you know, you're not going to touch certain things. So you have to work around it and figure out what is it that your people really, you know, crave. And then, you know, we go from there. Yeah. How about the how about at um, the Grand Hotel? Because that's even, like you said, more iconic for how it looks. Well, it, it's it's almost the exact same story, and what she said is is so so correct and profound. Here's what you do when you have an historic hotel if you're trying to do the right thing. It is that balance. You know, we know that you know we're both historians and we're romantics, and and we live in the past, and we'd love it to be like it exactly was. Well, that doesn't work. It's still a business. It has to be viable. It has to make money. So the goal is to find someone that knows and understands the balance. And here's the balance: you offer as many modern technologies you have to be to competitive in the hotel business, but don't forget who you are and why people come to see your place. And if you lose that, if you go say, oh, we don't need that, get rid of this, put up aluminum siding, get rid of afternoon tea, all of a sudden, no matter what money you spend, you can't get that back. And that's the most important thing. So at our hotel, you know, we have a, you know, a very good base of conventions. We didn't start out as a convention hotel by any means. We were just a resort for the wealthy for the summer. But we realized to be competitive in the world, we built nine meeting rooms. It's a good percentage of our business. So we need all those amenities that make conventions viable and sellable. Uh, you know, we're a very challenging place to get to. So we have to offer value for what we charge in that. But we still have afternoon tea. We still have a dress code. We still have Bellman out front in formal outfits. So it, it's it's that balance. You know, we have nine restaurants. We have everything from a formal where you have to dress to go into dinner. You sit down. It's a five course dinner. And then we've got a Bavarian theme thing. We've got a sports bar. We've got a country club. And we're building us a pizza parlor this year. So there's a little bit of everything. So if you want to be casual, you can be for those travelers. If you want to come and experience what it's like to listen to an orchestra while you have a five course dinner served by somebody in a tuxedo. Yep, we've got that as well. I can't wait for TripAdvisor to say the best pizza they've ever had was on Mackinac Island. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so you said it's hard to get to Mackinac Island, but I mean, there's no bridge um, and uh, you're on the Straits of Mackinac, which is just a beautiful, gosh, I, I just keep talking about how beautiful the Great Lakes are. Um, I, I'm sorry about that, but um, how do you get to Mackinac Island if it's hard to get there? Well, I don't. When I mean hard to get there, the Fister has a wonderful thing. You fly into the airport and they have shuttles and they'll take you right to the hotel. Well, you know, if you're coming from Chicago, you have to fly from Chicago into Detroit. Or if you're coming from Chicago, you can rent a car and come up or fly into Traverse City. But it is, just say if you're running a convention, if you're going to the Fister Hotel, oh, it's just so easy. You pull your truck up and unload everything. At our place, we're a horse-drawn world. You know, of all the people, all the things that make Mackinac Island unique, and there's so many. Any, but the, the horse culture, it, it's a living, breathing, working 
horse culture, the largest and longest in the country. And it's not a novelty at your county fair that you look at once a year. Everything that moves, moves behind a horse. So when you have a convention coming from a big city and you say, well, here's what you got to do. You got to unload your stuff on a boat and the boat comes across seven miles to the island. And we unload your stuff on a dray and that's a flatbed held by two horses. And it comes up to the hill behind the hotel and they think you're crazy when you say these things. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. If I can get these people under my roof, and they spend a couple days there, it's what I call they get it. All of a sudden they get it. And these people running around crazy, you know, used to the amenities and the transportation of a city. I can't tell you how many of them come to me and say, hey, how do I get one of these carriage rides? Or can I rent a bicycle? Or where are the prettiest hiking trails? And then you get it and you come back. And and literally over half our guests, all sometimes as many as three quarters of the guests in the hotels are returns and referrals. And that's what keeps us going. Do the horse and buggy horse carriages have to compete with golf carts, though? There are no golf carts on the road. They're not allowed. At times, you can cross a road with a golf cart, and you're not even supposed to do that. You can get a permit to move a motor vehicle, but this is the law on Mackinac Island. You have to prove that what you're doing cannot be done behind a horse, and that's the truth. So if you need one dump truck full of stuff, but 10 of those horse-drawn carriages can do the same thing as a dump truck, you are required by law to hire the 10 horses. If not, you go to the city council, you ask for a variant, you pay a monstrous daily fine, you have a police escort to move a motor vehicle. So no, there's about six 6,000 bicycles on the island peak season and sometimes up to 600 horses. I think we were in the high 400s last year. Well, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling to myself. That's just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. That's amazing that they can maintain that. So, so um, uh, you don't have the pollution from the cars and stuff, but you got a lot of horses there. So, so is they kind of evened out that way or I, you, probably got a great management system to handle the horse-related things, right? You have to watch where you step. That's all I can tell you. When we, we're going to be opening the hotel soon and, and I make all new employees, I say, you got to get a lock for your bicycle because the only real crime here we have is a little bit of bicycle theft. And they said, the other thing is you have to have fenders on your bike. And these kids have these fancy high-end, you know, off-road bikes. And I said, no, you have to have fenders if you work at Grand Hotel because those mud puddles, when it's raining, that is not mud. And when you get that stripe up your back, you're going to get yelled at from Ballet. We have full time, the hotel has two, and the city between four and six full time. Uh, pooper scoopers and they go around with shovels behind the horses. We have one specifically just for Grand Hill that leads up to it and they're just standing there waiting and they pick it up and believe it or not, we recycle it. It goes to the center of the island. It is mixed with the food waste. Uh, it takes about two years. They check the pH and then it comes down as fertilizer and that's what that's what makes our geraniums look so pretty. That's, a, that's just amazing. Um, um, Leslie, you're from Milwaukee, right? Mm-hmm, I am. Bob talked a little bit. He kind of said, you know, once upon a time, the, the, the weather never got above 80 degrees. So you're living in Milwaukee and, and um, you know, on Lake Michigan. Um, any observations about how things have changed or, you know, are the winters as cold? I, I'm, I'm digressing just slightly, but I, I want to go back and ask Bob the same question. What are you observing um, in your direction or is it just something you don't really see changes? It's, it seems like there's a lot less snow than there used to be. I mean, there there are times, of course, we have, you know, blizzard-like conditions, but all of a sudden the next day it'll be warm and it's gone. Um, it, it also seems like we're a little bit warmer than we used to be. You know, and, and as far as changes in the city of Milwaukee, um, 
you know, Milwaukee has has built so many beautiful buildings and they keep adding on and adding, you know, we have the Calatrava, we have, you know, the the stadium, we have so much going on all the time here. It's it's just so exciting to be in the city. You know, it, it seems like there's things happening all the time. But with COVID, I mean, you can imagine for the hotel and all the service businesses, we've we've had to, you know, really work to to come back from that. But you know, then again, now, um, right now we have um, the basketball championships in Milwaukee. And so we've got a lot of people around this weekend. Yeah. So, yeah, ebbs and flows in the business for sure. Bob, you, you said that, um, I guess you hinted at a little bit of climate change impact up there. What are you seeing? There's absolutely climate change. Um, I've, I've been there 27 years and I've seen a bit when I talk to the locals, um, pretty amazing. Uh, the summers are, we had a very cool summer, but the temperatures are much less predictable. The water level in the lake, of course, has been an issue the last couple of years. It's receding right now, but the winters are just, for the people that live on that island, there's about a little over 500 um, residents that stay there. So 7,000 people on the island, not including tourists during the summer, down to 500 in the winter. And their life changes when the ice bridge, when the lake freezes over between the island and St. Ignace, because before that, if you live on that island, it's very expensive because you have to fly back and forth to the mainland. You have to pay per pound for your groceries coming back and forth. So you really plan a trip to the mainland to get everything done in a day and bring the family back. And their whole world changes when that ice bridge forms, when it's uh, it's about 5.3 miles from the island over to St. Ignace. So they, you know, I go to Florida in the winter because I think that's what you're supposed to do, but they stay on that island. And their world changes when they can take that snowmobile over and go over for a gallon of milk and go across. It's so much more economical, the freedom that gives them the ice bridge. It there, you know, years before the ice bridge lasted months. Sometimes it's not at all, sometimes just a few weeks. This year was a fairly good ice bridge, but they want that up as long as they possibly can to keep the convenience back and forth. So yeah, climate change is definitely real and definitely felt in our area. Yeah, I mentioned at our last podcast uh, talking to my my sister-in-law who was on the show um, because she is a real conservation hero uh, that early in the day I had a conversation with her and she was in the ice shanty. Um, and, and they, and the folks that live there, they just cannot wait till that ice freezes over. They can, they can get to the mainland on their snowmobiles. They can, um, get ice fishing, fill up their refrigerator, their freezers with, um, with walleye and perch. Um, and they feel really disappointed. And I, I, we have talked a little bit about the impact of climate change on Lake Superior, and there is definitely an impact, and they are seeing uh, different species of fish moving around that they did not see before. Do you think these hotels would have been built if not for the nature of the Gilded Age? And Bob, how about you? Uh, the tourism, see, the Gilded Age was such a short period. It really was. It was extremely impactful on culture and art and architecture and design and fashion, the way people live, because it was our first you know, we didn't have millionaires at that time. You know, uh, this was the second generation and they had this money and it was unbridled capitalism. There were no rules. There were no labor laws. You know, we just like you mentioned earlier, we should never forget that all this Gilded Age prosperity was made on the backs of the absolute hardest labor ever in the United States. They took major advantages of, you know, large groups of people. Um, so this was an untaxed. There was no personal income tax. Uh, you made the money. You kept the money. 
it's hard for us to imagine that essentially there was no middle class at the time. There was a super wealthy, the landowner, the factory owner, the robber baron, a giant socioeconomic gap, and then the farm labor and the factory labor. All that changed very dramatically. Uh, a minimum wage was being paid. Uh, uh, personal income tax came about. World War One came about. And the whole Gilded Age, this, this luxury lifestyle uh, was challenged. And the biggest thing that challenged it was a middle class rose up. All of a sudden, when a living wage is paid, these people can afford to travel and stay places. We were built for the ultra wealthy to stay for two months. Most of these hotels didn't figure out you got to serve everybody to make it work. We didn't make legitimate money truly till about 1949. We just did the best we could. We believed in it. We had a series of optimists that ran the place. We were subsidized by transportation companies. So a middle class rose up and you figure out you got to take care of everybody. And most of these hotels did not figure that out. Conventions are a part of it. When we started putting building for conventions, in the 70s. They said, you're, you're foolish. You're a summer resort hotel. You know, it's over 50% of our business today. So the, the secret to success is to adapt and evolve, but still don't forget who you are and why those people came to your place. Leslie, you said that the Fister was built for everybody. Um, and uh, but, but, but even then, given the nature of the time, do you think it would have been built if not for you know, the nature and culture of the uh, Gilded Age? I absolutely believe they would not have built it. And, you know, I think about this because one of the things that, you know, the Marcus Corporation has done has is to take older hotels and renovate them. So we did this in Oklahoma City to the Skirvin, you know, we've got, we continue to do this because we're good at it. But it costs more to renovate one of those hotels than it costs to build a new one from scratch today. And, you know, all those details, all those craftspeople, I don't even know that we have that kind of talent in the world that could could do that that much. You know, sure, there are people who can do it, but not as many. It wouldn't be as easy to get. It would be so expensive. It would it would cost a fortune. There's I cannot see anybody doing that today. I think that's the, the nature of the National Cathedral in Washington is finding the artisans to finish the work. Um, it took a long, long time. Now, um, Tyler, um, you know, I think you and I both came into this really just wanting to understand the history of the times, and it definitely was not intended to be like a tourism bureau conversation, but holy smokes, I, I kind of want to get back to these two places. I want to see the art, um, the Victorian art and the Fister. I, I want to see, um, you know, well, I, I, I think, Leslie, before we started this issue, uh, this podcast, you and I were talking offline, and you talked about getting down to the vault uh, in, in the Fister. Um, I can only imagine what that's like um, in there and the and just the, the treasures that are down there. So, golly, uh, you know, we get down there. If, if I buy you a beer, can I get into the vault? <laughs> you you come here, I will buy you a beer <laughs> or Tyler or Bob. I don't care. And, you know, give you guys the behind the scenes secret tour. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you have any beer in Milwaukee? Oh, I, I think there might be one or two. We might be able to come up with something. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, um, the, yeah, Tyler, um, Grand Hotel, too. Um, I, you know, only had to see a movie to think you wanted to be there, but seeing it in person, given everything, uh, you heading there soon? You bet, Helen. I want to get up there. It sounds amazing. I had no idea about the deep, rich history, and I agree. I want to get up there and and just walk the halls and feel the vibes. Yeah, um, and 
um, speaking of climate change, gosh, I hate this, um, but the, and there's no positive side to it, but your season in, uh, up on Mackinac has extended quite a bit since it first started, right, Bob? Yeah, we started out at two months and then we just slowly have expanded the season. We're open right at six months. We open here next month and we'll close the end of October. So if you had to tell somebody what's the best time to go? And that's, that's like, I know, picking your favorite baby. It really is impossible to pick it. But uh, the spring is absolutely, you know, when all those tulips bloom, it is absolutely unbelievable. And then the lilac festival uh, is, you know, we have the highest concentration of lilac trees. There, you smell something other than fudge and horse on the island during that period of time. The summer is fun. Uh, the fall is absolutely my favorite time when the leaves change on the island. It just has a whole different feel to it during that time. It's a little less crowded in the fall, but there's no bad time to visit Mackinac, trust me. Well, you know, just talking about lilacs, the smell of lilac automatically takes me back to Middle Bass Island and growing up. It's the most wonderful feeling. Leslie, if you were going to tell somebody, you know, come on to Milwaukee and stay at the Fister, is there a time of year you'd recommend? Well, you know, summer is great because there's so many places you can walk to and there's Summerfest, you know, the biggest musical festival in the world. And so summer would be great. Winter is fun because there are less people. I don't know. It's hard to say. It would just depend what you want. Anytime, though, you could be sitting in the Fister and you might see somebody that you recognize, you know, because there's a lot of famous people who stay there. So you just just come there and sit in the lobby and see what you see. I don't I think anytime is good. Yeah, it sounds lovely. Well, it's time to wrap it up. And I'm kind of disappointed. We've had so much fun today. I'd like to thank Bob Taggart's the resident historian for the Grand Hotel and Leslie Heinrichs, the archivist for the Fister Hotel and Marcus Corporation. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Well, this wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on North Coast Chronicles does not necessarily represent the opinion of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time when we head back east to talk about the Lake of Shining Waters, or Lake Ontario. When we ask, why doesn't the lake freeze over? Does Lake Ontario have a tide? Where in the world is its namesake, Ontario Lacus? And why is Lake Ontario the most threatened of the Great Lakes? Until then, be good to one another.